Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University and Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hi, Alan. Hi, Darren. Uh, It's Thursday, the 2nd of July today, and can I first thank you all for helping make our interview with DFAT Secretary Francis Adamson our most downloaded ever in its first week, and it even saw us rank in the top 50 podcasts in the news category on Apple's charts, and that individual episode in the top 200, which was very cool. Have the the sponsors been on to you yet, Darren? (laughs) I seem to have missed their calls, but I'm sure they're trying to get through. But let's get started on our next 50 episodes. We had a very nice episode planned for today, but these past few days there have been two big stories that I at least want to bring your attention to, even though we won't discuss them much today. First is the 2020 Defence Strategic Update announced by Prime Minister Morrison yesterday, and the second is the coming into force of China's new national security law for Hong Kong, which appears to mark the end once and for all of one country, two systems. These are important stories and we will no doubt discuss them in the future, but we have more than enough already for today. We'll begin with the annual Lowy Institute poll, turn next to India-China tensions, third we cannot avoid more on Australia-China, and finally we'll finish by reversing the lens of our inquiry. So it focuses on Alan and his brush with headlines in the last few weeks. So we'll begin with the latest Lowy poll. As the founding executive director of the Lowy Institute, Alan. The poll was your idea, and I recommend episode 23 of our podcast, where you described your thinking at the time for why a poll of Australians' foreign policy views was needed. The Lowy poll is currently directed by Natasha Kassam, who is a research fellow in Lowy's Diplomacy and Public Opinion Program. This year, it reflects two sets of polls being taken. The standard poll, which was taken in March, before COVID-19 had really hit hard, and a mini-poll taken in April once the implications of the pandemic were becoming clearer. Can I recommend the poll's website to our listeners? A fantastically interactive platform where, for example, you can see the breakdown of answers across years by age group, gender and state. Alan, what for you are the major headlines from the poll this year? I think the, the poll has now done what I always hope, which is to give us solid empirical evidence over time of how Australians see the world and how their views are changing. And as you say, I do want to emphasise your point. The whole team at Lowy have done an absolutely outstanding job, Mm. I think, in making this unique set of data available in digital form. The headline information this year was all focused on the declining level of trust Australians have in China to act responsibly in the world. This reached record lows. And at the same time, there were high levels of support for the view that we should reduce our economic dependence on China and sanction Chinese officials associated with human rights abuses. But given what's happened in the world and in Australia's relations with China over the past 12 months, maybe that's not surprising. Mm. For a long time, for a number of years, Australian public opinion was an outlier among developed countries in seeing China as opportunity rather than threat. And this was 
basically because our economic relationship was so complementary mm. and uh, so much in our favour. Well, that attitude is now gone. We'll come back to China later, but I did note that contrary to the claims of some commentators, younger Australians, in fact, prioritise the relationship with China over that with the United States. Mm. Uh, 54% of 18 to 29-year-olds think Australia's relationship with China is more important than its relationship with the United States, compared with 37% of Australians over 30. Mm. So that's China. On the United States, we see clear lines of continuity. In fact, Australians don't trust Donald Trump much more than they trust Xi Jinping to do the right thing in world affairs. Mm. But we see, again, the long-standing differentiation between trust in the United States, which is a very volatile measure and goes up and down with views of the president, mm. and support for the alliance relationship as important or very important to Australian security. That's at 78% up a bit this yeah. year, but basically clear and substantial and consistent with what we've seen in the past. I also wanted to note the consistency, but the depressing consistency in the continuing ignorance and suspicion in the Australian public mind about Indonesia. Every year I look at the poll and, you know, every year I sigh, just 39% of respondents, and that's a figure that's actually decreasing, mm. think that Indonesia is a democracy. And trust in Indonesia, for whatever reason, has slumped to the lowest point in the poll's history. So, you know, in my view, the Australian people don't always get it right. Mm. But the most interesting change for me this year, I think, was the answer to the question, which has been there from the beginning of the poll, which simply asks, now, about world affairs, how safe do you feel? This was first asked in 2005 when 91% of respondents said they felt safe or very safe. And there was a boring predictability in that answer year after year, which, as I recall, led us in the early days of the poll to ask whether it was worth even continuing to ask it because it was mm. so blindingly obvious. But I'm glad that they persevered because this year the figure plunged to 50%, by far the lowest ever recorded and just 4% respondents felt very safe. And that obviously represents something real that's happened across the way the Australian community are thinking about their place in the world. Mm. Thanks, Alan. Let's follow up on that final point and I'll put my international relations theorists hat on. I, I note, as you said, that that question is asked with respect to world events. And then the next question in the poll, which is asked sequentially, as I understand it, is about specific threats to Australian interests. So not directly about safety. And at the top of, of that list is drought, which was, makes no surprise given Australia's long-term droughts, COVID-19, economic downturn, environmental disasters like bushfires, we remember the big bushfires in December, January, and climate change. And that the climate change is the lowest of that top tier. I think it came in at 59%. Now, my hypothesis would be, I think, that the more unsafe you feel, the more receptive you'll be to policies framed as making you feel more safe, more often those associated with national security. And conversely, you'll be less supportive of policies that might introduce uncertainty in regards to security, even if they meet other important priorities. And I'm reminded of the liberty versus security debate that was had in the 2000s with regards to terrorism. 
So, I mean, we're not talking about it today, as I said, Alan, but this defence update that's just been announced by the Prime Minister strikes me as the kind of thing that might receive relatively more support in some emotional, visceral sense from the Australian public in this kind of environment where people are feeling more unsafe. And this, of course, extends then to framing of attitudes regarding our two great and powerful friends, the US and China. I mean, do you have any comment on this? Yeah, well, look, I'd certainly expect that to be the reaction. As you say, respondents were more concerned about non-traditional security threats like drought than either military threats or terrorism. But that could have been partly the way the questions were phrased. Mm. But I would have thought that the government's focus on the defence of Australia and whatever you, you think about the precise details of the PM's statement would have exactly the right sort of reassuring resonance with the public in an uncertain time. But let me ask you about the poll, because you published a piece for the Lowy Interpreter uh, looking at the uh, results through the lens of negative globalism. So what, what was your argument? Uh, yes, indeed, Alan. I was trying to draw a line from the Prime Minister's Lowy lecture last year, remembered, of course, for his use of the terms negative globalism and an unaccountable internationalist bureaucracy, which, of course, you and I debated, partially disagreed on in back in episode 31 of this podcast. And I was trying to draw a line from that speech through the foreign minister's speech a few weeks ago at the ANU and now to the poll results. And as I argued back in episode 31, Alan, I viewed the PM's rhetoric around negative globalism as an attempt to build and sustain populist credentials with voters who are increasingly sceptical of globalisation and do want governments to focus more on sovereignty, whether that's because they have particular economic or cultural grievances or maybe just a base form of nationalism. But the speech was just rhetoric. There was no specific divisive policy decision on the table where the PM was advocating for a particular side. You know, you contrast that with something like Brexit. And so that's how I saw the speech then. And I think the main poll results demonstrate that the judgment embodied in that speech about the Australian public sentiment is correct. You saw two-thirds of Australians saying that, quote, the Australian government should prioritise Australia's domestic interest And then you had less than one third saying it should prioritise reaching a global agreement. Now, of course, it's easy to say in a survey that Australian interests should always come first in the abstract when there are no concrete trade-offs. But that's the same as the PM's lowest speech, I think, you know, an emotional or rhetorical affect rather than a concrete policy argument. So having used a speech like that, and more generally in his statements to to sustain a certain kind of populist credentials, the PM and his government have room to pivot back when necessary towards a more traditional emphasis on international cooperation. And this is where COVID-19 comes in, because it did two things. One, it reminded Australians that we live in an interdependent world and that some cooperation is necessary. And to quote the foreign minister here from a few weeks ago, the heart of successful international cooperation is the concept that each country shares rather than yields a portion of its sovereign decision making. And I could never imagine Prime Minister Morrison saying that, and it does seem like quite a departure from his speeches last year. But it's much closer to the traditional approach of Australian foreign policy. And second, COVID-19 has exposed the flaws in populism around the world. Populist governments are some of the worst performing and really highlighting their incompetence, and the USA and Brazil are at the top of this list. And 
Meanwhile, the Australian public gave our government pretty good marks in the COVID mini-poll, showing that they're happy with the competence of this government's response. So it makes you wonder whether the political appeal of populism is going to take a hit, and with it, some of those critiques of globalism. What do you think, Alan? Well, a couple of things. I do think you're probably over-elaborating Morrison's strategy. My own view is that he just came back from the States before the Lowy speech, pissed off with his treatment at the <laughs> UN and wanting, and wanting to sound off. So I'm not quite as sure as you are that it was a subtle ploy. <laughs> but secondly, supporting your final point, it, it is interesting how the support for globalisation in the Lowy poll has stood up through all this. So 70% of poll respondents still think globalisation has been good for Australia. That's, I think, a reflection of the fact that even though the world is changing, the deepest strains of populism haven't quite bitten here yet. Actually, I remember seeing just a few hours ago polling from the US, I think it was Gallup, and for the first time in the history of the question, which went back to the 1960s, if I remember correctly, a plurality of Americans thought that immigration was a good thing. It wasn't a majority, but it was the first time that the highest number of good thing, bad thing, or don't know came in for it being a good thing. And oh, so wow. I think, again, yeah. it's sort of the Trump effect seeing the incompetence on display and rejecting it. It's still, it was still in the 30s, I think, 35, maybe 40%, but the fact that it's a plurality was notable. Okay, well, let's move on to India-China. And on the 15th of June, after more than a month of tensions and scuffles, violence erupted between Chinese and Indian military forces on their disputed border, which was called the Line of Actual Control, high up in the Ladakh region of the Himalayas. It's the first deadly clash on the border for at least 45 years. Both sides placed the blame on the other for instigating the action. The Indian government reported 20 deaths of its own soldiers, and we don't know how many Chinese soldiers died for sure. However, because both sides seem to have adhered to 1990s agreements not to use, quote, military capabilities, it was reportedly rocks and rods and planks with nails in them that were used as weapons. Prime Minister Modi of India said that there was no incursion into Indian territory. And following the incident, both sides have issued statements emphasising their defence of their own sovereignty, but also that both seem willing to reduce tensions. However, an increase in military build-up has been observed in the region in recent weeks. Now, I found it very hard to know what's going on in this conflict, in part because of the asymmetry of information. We get a lot of coverage from the Indian press and very little from the Chinese side. But you know, military deaths have occurred between two proud very sensitive and nuclear-armed states. Both, of course, we must note, are, are comprehensive strategic partners of Australia. So I think it is worth thinking about. Yeah, look, I agree it's worth thinking about, but I thought I'd get your take first. Why do you think these events matter? I think they matter if, it, if they do push India into a long-term policy position that is more hostile to China. You know, Alan, you might be able to provide some history on this, but I've always thought of India as trying to avoid taking clear sides in great power politics. If New Delhi wanted to continue in that more sort of non-aligned position, then that would presumably mean doing some things into the future that make Washington happy and some things that make Beijing happy. But I think back to the point I made a few episodes about the travel warning issued by the Chinese government against Australia where the only meaningful impact I could see, given that travel has stopped between the two countries anyway, 
was its impact on domestic politics inside Australia. And that most things that China seems to have done in recent months, whether justified in principle or not, have served to empower and embolden one set of voices in the Australian debate and weaken another set of voices. And so I'm wondering, is the same thing happening here? You know, while the Modi government has seemed to be making every effort not to escalate this particular crisis, I cannot imagine public opinion inside India ever supporting anything that looks remotely like a concession to Beijing into the future now that Indian soldiers' lives have been lost at the hands of Chinese soldiers for the first time in decades. I think India has been slowly trending towards what we would call in international relations theory balancing approach towards China. If we look at its increased participation in the Quad, for example, but this has only been incrementally because going too far, of course, is not necessarily in India's national interest. It's, it's risky and you don't want to invite China's ire for no obvious security benefit. But now I'm wondering whether New Delhi will start to see more and more security benefits in explicitly balancing against China, whether it will become more tolerant of the risks and costs of doing so, not just soldiers wielding planks up in the Himalayas, but in partnering with the US and Australia and others in pushing back along a host of domains. Alan, do you have any reaction to that, or, or can I be provocative? Might there be officials inside the Australian government right now who see these tensions as being to Australia's benefit? Just back on the history, Darren, I don't think India is slowly moving back towards balancing with China. Its deep relationship with the Soviet Union during the Cold War, despite its commitment to non-alignment, was precisely designed to balance against China during the Sino-Soviet dispute, as well as against the United States, which was allied at that time with Pakistan. So I would just say that the Indians have been well onto this for a while, for a while now. Mm. I'm also very happy for you to be provocative. <laughs> and I certainly assume that there are people in the government who would see tensions on the border as contributing to the likelihood that India will be more open to higher degrees of military cooperation with Australia, whether that's through the quads or bilaterally. Yeah, it also has a non-military dimension as well. Just this past week, the Indian government has banned the wildly popular Chinese video sharing app TikTok and a number of other Chinese-made apps besides. In a statement, the government said that the apps were, quote, prejudicial to sovereignty and integrity of India, defence of India, security of state and public order. And another app that was banned was the messaging app WeChat. So if this ban is sustained, and I've seen reports that the blocking of the app has already begun, this seems to me to be a really huge deal because it signals a willingness on the part of the Indian government to accept the costs of decoupling from China in the technology space. Now, you would have to imagine that there is much less likelihood now that Huawei is going to play any meaningful role in the future 5G network in India. And India is one of the most important states in the global battle for 5G. You, know, you might say it's a, it's a swing state. If Chinese companies cannot get a foothold there, that will hamper their ability to maintain a global presence. And now, it's still early days, but if the consequence of what to me seem like marginal gains at the line of actual control end up transforming the politics of China inside India in ways that have 
major long-term consequences, you know, that's, that's quite significant. And, and to me, it strikes me as a pretty bad deal for China. And to the extent that Australia stays on its own technology trajectory vis-a-vis China, you would think this would create opportunities for a closer relationship in that domain as well. Any last comment from you, Alan, before we move on? Well, it's another significant sign of international decoupling in a technological sense, but I think I'll take refuge in too soon to tell on it, Darren. Fair enough. Let's move on to our third item, China-Australia, and and in particular, espionage accusations against Australia. I mean, it seems every episode on the podcast we have fresh material, and this week is no different. We've got three big events that we should at least acknowledge. First, Prime Minister Morrison gave a press conference on the 19th of June, in which he said that Australia was facing increased cyber attacks from a state-based actor, with journalists later being told that this was almost certainly China. The following week, a New South Wales state Labor MP, Shaket Mosselman, had his home and office raided by authorities as part of an investigation into allegations. His office was infiltrated by a Chinese government agent. Mosselman has been vocally supportive of PRC government positions, and he's travelled to China many times. But of course, these by themselves don't in any way equate to wrongdoing. And he says that he's not a suspect in the espionage investigation. Third, this week, the state-owned Chinese tabloid The Global Times published a lengthy story alleging that Chinese authorities had disrupted an Australian spy operation. While the claims were mocked on Twitter and apparently also by Australian officials in private, China's foreign ministry spokesman, Zhao Lingjian, offered the government support for the story, saying that there was, quote, irrefutable evidence of Australian spying in China and saying that the Global Times report was, quote, just the tip of the iceberg. So, Alan, we could spend an entire episode on these stories alone, but I'm going to push the Mosselman story to a future episode and shelve the cyber stuff for the moment because I want to tell you what I did when I read the report of the Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson's comments on the Global Times story. I immediately thought of the two detained Canadians in China, one of whom is named Michael Kovrig, who are being held essentially as hostages because of Canada's arrest for extradition to the US of a Huawei executive. And so I wondered to myself, do these stories make it more risky for Australians to be in China? Should Australians who are in China be worried? And the best way of answering that question, or at least partially, is to check Australia's own travel warning website, smarttraveller.gov.au. So I did. I went and had a look at the travel advice for China, which I've never done before, at least not in the 15 plus years since I've been to China myself. And the travel advice is, is really lengthy. I mean, it must take a long time, a lot of work to get it updated. But two sections jumped out at me in particular. One is on exit bans which says, quote, sometimes people aren't aware of an exit ban on them until they try to leave China. And the other section was called Other Laws and says, quote, China has strict laws on national security. These laws can be interpreted broadly. You could break the law without intending to. Authorities have detained foreigners because they are, and this is in air quotes, or I'm making air quotes here, they're quoted in the the document, endangering national security. So, Alan, you can comment on any and all of what I've just been talking about, but my question for you is specifically, if hypothetically the Australian government had reason to believe that Australian nationals living in China might be at risk of being arbitrarily detained, what what do they do at that point? I think they do 
pretty much exactly what they have done, Darren. That is, they make the dangers clear in the in the travel advisory. You know, the alternative would be to advise all Australians to leave China in case something bad happened. And you couldn't do that and expect a normal relationship to continue. That's the sort of thing governments do on the eve of war. Mm. But there's no doubt, I, I mean, I agree with you that Chinese actions recently including the Canadian arrests and the crackdown on academics in China itself, mm. are having a chilling effect on the willingness of outsiders, even people who would class themselves as supporters of engagement, to continue to do that. Thanks, Alan. Let me say this. I think the most interesting thing the Australian government will say in the coming days is not going to be necessarily in press releases or interviews given by the Prime Minister or the Foreign Minister, but actually it will be updates to the Smart Traveller website. And that actually brings me briefly to Hong Kong because I have <laughs> some breaking news, you might say. I was on the Smart Traveller website earlier this morning and the advice for Hong Kong had not been updated since early June, but I'm on now and I can see that they've just posted a new advice on today, the 2nd of July. And if you go down and read it under the section Local Law, it says, National security legislation for Hong Kong came into effect on 1 July 2020. This law could be interpreted broadly. You could break the law without intending to. The maximum penalty under this law in Hong Kong is life imprisonment. Under the law, you could be deported or face possible transfer to mainland China for prosecution under mainland law, which is quite an amazing statement to appear on the Smart Traveller website, but it's consistent with commentary that I have seen about Article 38 of the new national security law in particular, which purports to have extraterritorial effect, such that, Alan, something that you and I say on this podcast could potentially, if it was seen as a violation of the law, get us arrested were we to arrive in Hong Kong. And so this initial update, which I'm sure the staff at DFAT have been working overtime in the last 24 hours to prepare, is possibly just the first of more to come as more about this law is learned. So yes, look, we'll need to talk about this more into the future. But in the meantime, the Smart Traveller website might be the most interesting place to see what the Australian government is thinking about these very serious and concerning issues. Okay, well, our final story today, Alan, is about you and your recent brush with <laughs> infamy. On Sunday, the 21st of June, a reporter from Sky News and the Daily Telegraph broke a story that you, Alan Gingell, identified as the director of the organisation China Matters, had given a briefing to the Labor Party's shadow cabinet. I can only assume that this was leaked by someone who had been at the briefing, and the angle taken in the reporting, and there was also a report that was a bit more subtle in the Australian newspaper about this, was that you were a lobbyist for this pro-Beijing think tank, ruthlessly crushing the free speech of poor maligned Labor MPs because you said that MPs criticising China were causing unnecessary provocation to a complex relationship already in trouble, and that you had specifically mentioned the Wolverines a group of parliamentarians who self-identify as taking a hard line on China policy. Now, we are neither Sky News nor the Daily Telegraph, Alan, but for what we are worth as a podcast, can I invite you to respond to these reports? 
Thank you for that question, Darren. <laughs> Look, it is an unusual experience to find yourself on the front page of the Daily Telegraph and the Herald Sun under the headline, Beijing Besties. Mm. Along with a number of other outside experts, I was invited to speak to the ALP shadow cabinet, particularly about Australia and China. I was happy to agree, as I would be and do to any policy body that wants to discuss Australian foreign policy. The points I made at the briefing about China and the way we should deal with it were ones I've made many times on this podcast and elsewhere, including in a very long essay in Australian foreign affairs last year. So there was nothing at all surprising in anything that I said. Almost all the claims made in the article uh, that I was invited there as a representative of China matters rather than as you know an individual that I claimed that critics of China were causing unnecessary provocation to the relationship were just plain wrong. Now, it is true, as listeners to the podcast heard me say a couple of weeks ago, that I said I thought the self-description by a bunch of Australian lawmakers senators and members of the Parliament of the Commonwealth of Australia as the Wolverines, as though they were a bunch of high school students out there holding the Tricoms at bay, trivialises the most serious issue facing Australian statecraft as though it was simply a video game. But I'd clearly walked into the middle of a minefield of political conflicts, including within the ALP and from some of the China hawks in Parliament who had it in for China matters. Now, luckily, I've been around Australian politics and the media for long enough not to be phased by this sort of thing. Tabloid newspaper editors and journalists who don't know me are not among the group of people whose views I care very much about. In any case, I have precisely zero political or professional ambitions that might be damaged by such attacks. But the experience did give me great sympathy for younger or less experienced people who find themselves targets of media campaigns. And it was also a reminder of creeping McCarthyism that we're seeing in Australia when groups as resolutely mainstream as China matters become attacked as agents of influence of the Chinese government and business people are harassed into silence about their interests for fear of being tarred as un-Australian. And then I think this also does play through into fanning suspicions in the broader community about Chinese Australians. But finally, the final point really is that the media and political proponents behind these attacks don't even seem to recognise the deep irony in their pursuing illiberal campaign of silencing people whose views they disagree with while criticising China's own intellectual repression. Mm. Well said, Alan. In a ray of sunlight in this gloom, I think it's worth saying that you had some high-profile defenders. Dennis Richardson, friend of the podcast and your own personal friend, gave a magnificent performance on Sky, which I'll link to in the show notes, where, amongst other things, he said, for one group to continually wrap themselves in the flag and who want to imply that those who disagree with them are not loyal Australians is simply crossing a line that's unacceptable and they should be called out for that. And Labor's foreign affairs spokesperson, Penny Wong, said that Alan Ginger was invited because he's one of Australia's preeminent foreign policy experts he is somebody who is extraordinarily well regarded by both sides of politics. 
So, Alan, I think you're right when you say that you waded into a minefield of political, factional and personality conflicts. And this is something that I would like to talk about more in the future. But the collateral damage of these factional and personality conflicts can be really consequential, you know, both for Australia's management of the China relationship, the most complex and difficult relationship we've ever faced, but also, as you sort of pointed out, for the health of our democracy. Characterising or insinuating that China matters, for example, is some pro-Beijing think tank, is not only flat-out wrong, but it's corrosive of the very freedoms which distinguish us from the China model. Now, I'm sure, listeners, if you've listened this far into the podcast, I expect you probably have some sympathy for Alan, but there may be some of you who have less sympathy for the China Matters organisation, which, of course, Alan is on the board of, but I personally have had nothing to do with in, in my career. And it's fine, I think, to disagree with their output, but I would hope before doing so that one would go to their website, as recommended by DFAT Secretary Francis Adamson in our last episode, and read their output. If you do that and read closely read it, and still disagree with the substance, and maybe even vehemently, then okay. But to use the Australian rules football analogy, as citizens in a democracy, we need to play the ball, not the player. We need to engage with the substance of the argument rather than making cheap personal shots that are often factually wrong as well. Alan, it's interesting. I'm used to us being observers here in this little podcast, watching the world, but not thinking of us as players, as actors in this unfolding drama and occasional comedy that is international affairs. But your experience has told me some of us can become part of this story against our will. And therefore, it may be incumbent on all of us, and I include all of our listeners here, to be willing to participate actively on these questions into the future. (sighs) To be continued. All right, well, let's wrap up today with uh, something a bit lighter. Reading, listening and watching. Alan, what have you got for us today? It's not very often that 79-year-old Nobel Prize winners release albums of new music. So I've been listening to Bob Dylan's Rough and Rowdy Ways. The collection begins with the appropriately named I Contain Multitudes, which of course references Walt Whitman, but really brilliantly encapsulates Dylan himself. And it ends with Murder Most Foul, an extended 17-minute long meditation on the assassination of John F. Kennedy and on American life. Look, the album is is much more than a late career novelty. It's a really fine addition to Dylan's body of work. And if anyone's interested in the literary criticism, the music show with Andrew Ford on the ABC has a really great discussion about it with the Australian poet and Dylan fan, uh, Robert Adamson, which I, I hope we can put on the show notes. Well, thanks, Alan. I've also got something a bit more on the fun side. I've started watching a Canadian TV, I guess it's a sitcom. It's called Letterkenny, and it's available through SBS On Demand. All I can say is that it just brings joy to my life. I haven't had this experience watching a television show in in quite some time. It's just, it's 20 minutes an episode, so you can get through it pretty easily. You might need subtitles because it's meant to Letterkenny is a fictional small town in, in northern Ontario. And so they, they speak with quite a strong accent, or some of the characters do. And it, it, it sort of deliberately has a regressive feel to it. There's fighting is a significant part of what the people do there. But it's brilliant. It's really, really intelligent in its dialogue and in the situations that it creates for its characters. And just joy is the, is the word I use to describe it. So give it a try, Letterkenny. Have you watched it, Alan? 
before? I haven't, but I will now go watch it immediately. Joy is what we need. I'll post in the show notes on, on YouTube, there's a, a video of the, of the opening scene of the pilot. Um, and it really captures what the show is about. You could spend the two minutes watching that and you'll either be in, you'll either be in or out, I think, after you watch those two minutes. Okay, well, that is all for today's episode of Australia in the World. We want to extend our warmest thanks and bid farewell to Maddie Gordon and welcome our new AIIA intern, Mitchell McIntosh, and thank him for audio editing and research today. And, of course, Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. Thanks and talk to you again soon.